And welcome. Good afternoon. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I'm the host for Ocean Currents. This show is once a month, and we talk about different ocean topics, diving into this big blue planet, talking about different science, research, discovers, discoveries, uses, um, anything ocean. I'm looking for it to bring to you live on the air on Ocean Currents. So today's show is um, talking a little bit more about sustainable seafood. Historically, Humans have eaten fish as long as humans have been on this planet. However, something has changed over time. Our world population has expanded and expanded, driving up the need for more food. And so we've turned to the sea, a seemingly endless resource. But in the recent century, we've also started to see a drastic sea change. Recent science journals globally state that the ocean is in dire condition. If the long-term trend continues, a majority of wild-caught fish and seafood species are projected to collapse within the next 50 years. Already, researchers have found that 90% of all fish and seafood species in the world's oceans have been depleted within the past century. And we, as consumers, certainly have a role in this, and we'll be discussing this today. We're talking with Sheila Bowman from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program, and we'll be exploring some of the topics around how we can eat seafood and purchase seafood while helping to keep the ocean or the health of the ocean in mind as we purchase. So I'd like to welcome Sheila um, live on the air. Sheila, are you with us? Here. Good afternoon, Jennifer. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the air today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Great. So um, why don't you start by just giving us a little bit of an introduction to the Seafood Watch Program. How did it get set up? What are its main goals? Okay. Well, the Seafood Watch Program is part of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and we've been around since around the year 2000. I think most people are familiar with us through our pocket guides, but really what we do is um, we're a team here of, of researchers who do a lot of work looking at fishery data, looking at data that are coming out of fish farming operations to put together recommendations that consumers and businesses can use, as you were saying, when they're making decisions to purchase seafood. So it's interesting. We, we actually started with an exhibit that the aquarium did in the late 1990s, which was called Fishing for Solutions. It was all about some of the issues around fisheries with issues like bycatch and overfishing and habitat destruction. And out of that exhibit came both the staff but also our visitors concerned with what fisheries should we support because they're doing good things and maybe what fisheries should we stay away from because they're, they're not doing things in a way that's very environmentally friendly. So for the last eight years, we've been creating these recommendations for people. That's great. So what are the main issues surrounding purchasing seafood these days and fisheries in general? Well, you know, it's really, there are two ways, the two, two sources that we get seafood from, which is the wild fisheries that we're all familiar with, and then fish farms, or sometimes called aquaculture. So each of those two sources has their own issues. And if you're thinking about wild-caught fisheries, I think people traditionally think about wild fisheries and kind of almost a historic romantic way with guys and fishing poles on boats and really you know as you were saying it's changed so much in recent years to be really very industrialized kind of of fishing that we see and um so as a result of some of those changes you are seeing 
issues, things like overfishing. We've become very, very adept at fishing large numbers of fish. Um, as I said, habitat destruction, some of the gear we've developed actually can rake over the communities that are on the seafloor and really make it difficult for those communities to continue, you know, thriving and, and supporting sea life and the seafood that we like. Uh, bycatch is an issue. Sometimes if you go out with big nets trying to get one type of seafood, you're going to end up with a lot of other animals in that net that you didn't intend and that you can't eat. So those are some of the issues around the wild fisheries. If you're looking at things like farmed fish, it's more things like what are we feeding the fish in those farms? Are they carnivores that take other fish to, to feed those fish, or are they vegetarians? Um, how, how is the fish farm managing some of the byproducts, things like fish poop and, and other products that come out of those farms? So those are some of the things that we think about when we make our recommendations for, for farmed fish. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of recommendations to um, a lot of science communities looking at ways to reduce bycatch. And are, have you seen ways that we have been able to reduce bycatch? And just a reminder, the bycatch being things that we're not intending to take. And it can be anywhere from fishes that are, this is for the, for the listening audience, um, fishes that we don't intend to take or to sell and they accidentally are pulled up. And also bycatch being seabirds. Um, marine mammals and sharks. And, but have there been any ways we've been able to reduce bycatch at all? Well, there there are ways to reduce bycatch, and some of the some fishing of the portions of the industry actually are looking at modifying their gear so that hooks are more appropriate for hooking fish, but don't do such a great job of hooking seabirds or sea turtles. Um, some of them are looking at things like net modifications. I think perhaps you may have heard of something called a turtle exclusion device, which literally if the turtle gets into the net, a turtle is big enough to get back out of the net, but the net's intended prey, which is small shrimp, are caught in the net. So there are things that can be done with some of the different gear that we're using to make them you know, a little bit less tendency to, to catch bycatch. And and a lot of things, a lot of progress has been made. I think just from the reading I've done, a lot of folks are trying to use this gear, but it sounds like it's not across the board yet. As far as employing turtle excluder devices or using Tory lines to prevent birds from going after gear, what do you think it would take to have more fishing um, companies employ more of these bycatch reducing um, materials? Well, you know, here in the U.S., there's there are, I would say, more strict management on those kinds of requirements. So the longline fishery in the Pacific that catches tuna and swordfish has very strict quotas. If they catch more than a certain number of sea turtles a year, they close them down. So the fishermen are really incentivized. Same thing with um, some of the U.S. shrimp fishermen. So I think, I think one of the key things to sort of think about when you think about these devices, though, is they cost money. I mean, literally, a turtle excluding device can cost several hundred dollars, but they also cost money in that they take, perhaps you don't catch quite as many shrimp or you don't catch quite as many of the fish you're after. So for some countries and for some fishermen, they, can't, they, they literally can't afford to, to do those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people ask us, well, why are the U.S. fisheries 
tend to look a little better on your pocket guide recommendations. And lots of times that's the answer is because our government has required that these fishermen do something to help to, to help reduce bycatch. Right, but a lot of the animals are moving all over the place. They don't see those, exactly. those boundaries. So let's go back to the aquaculture a little bit. There sounds like there is some good aquaculture that's out there, maybe for the herbivorous fish, and then there's some aquaculture that's that's getting some bad wraps. C- can we just discuss those two different types sure. a little bit and, sure. and go over what fish might be good that is farmed and what fish sure. might be bad? What are some of the good ones? Well, some of the good ones, you know, there's a whole group of shellfish that are really good farmed products. You know, things like a, an oyster and a clam and a mussel, they really sort of stay where you put them and help clean the water. So those tend to be really good candidates for farmed for farmed products. Um, other fish that are more vegetarian in nature, like catfish and tilapia, those are also good candidates. So there's there are good products coming out of fish farms, and I think that may be something that surprises some of your listeners this afternoon, because people have really heard all the bad raps about farmed fish, and they think everything farmed's got to be bad. Mm-hmm. So if we can clear one thing up today, I think that would be a really, a really good start. Now, with the good fish farms, like catfish and tilapia, that's also that's based on how it's practiced, though, because I've read about tilapia. The, the ones in the U.S. are good, mm-hmm. but if you purchase tilapia that is farmed from outside the U.S., there is some questionable um, environmental concerns in regards to those. And how do you clarify those, and how do you make consumers aware of that? Exactly. And, you know, that the nice thing is if a consumer carries their pocket guide, it's all listed on there. Because I know a lot of people are concerned and interested in how am I going to remember it? Well, our mm-hmm. pocket guides are, you know, updated twice a year, and they just, if people just carry that, they're going to be in good shape. But you're right. There are different ways that these fish are farmed that will have impact on where they end up on the list. And U.S. farm tilapia is a good product where they are trying to reduce the amount of fish meal being used and the number of fish that are escaping and those kinds of things. And in other parts of the world, we're not seeing those developments yet. So those fish, those imported tilapia is on our red list. Mm -hmm. Now, how about the uh, more carnivorous fish that you were talking about? I'm assuming salmon is the biggie. Right. Um, Salmon's the biggie that we're a lot lot of us are familiar with, but I'm sure some of you are starting to hear about the farm tuna situation. So it's not just salmon. Salmon just sort of paved the way for some of these other carnivores. And I guess I would ask you to think about, you know, what other carnivores you and I eat. We don't eat a lot of carnivores. So we're we're talking about fish that need other fish protein to survive and grow. So... Just by definition, if you think about eating a carnivore, you're talking about, you know, it takes 100 pounds of anchovies to make, you know, 10 pounds of of salmon or 15 pounds of salmon. So you're using wild fish in large numbers to feed to a farmed fish to to get actually less fish than you started with. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. You're losing protein in that equation. You could have eaten 100 pounds of anchovies yourself, but by feeding them to the salmon, you end up with only about 15 pounds of salmon. And are these anchovies um, farmed as well, or are are those taken from the wild? Right now, the majority are taken from the wild. 
there are some, you know, fish farmers who are looking at other products, things, you know, even including things like chicken, soy, other proteins, to try and kind of address this concern that, you know, raising farm fish is actually taking, you know, having a larger impact on ocean fish. So I do believe there's people out there that are thinking about raising fish to feed to their farmed fish, but right now it's not happening on any large scale. Mm-hmm. Now, most of these are Atlantic salmon, and where do you find these Atlantic salmon farms? Are these all on the East Coast in the Atlantic Ocean? Well, you know, I think that's an excellent thing to point out is that most of the farm salmon that's out there is Atlantic salmon that's being farmed. So even though we have Pacific salmon, they're bringing the Atlantic salmon over here when they farm it in the Pacific. Aye. Mostly because Atlantic salmon are a little tougher, they grow a little more quickly. So they're just a more robust candidate for fish farming. Mm-hmm. So you can find these fish farms. Uh, we see them up in the British Columbia area, in Washington State. We've um, heard about them in Chile, down even you know other places around the world. I just heard about Tasmania is now farming Atlantic salmon, um, Scotland, Ireland. So... This animal is getting all around as people develop this the, the fish farms. What's interesting, watersheds all around the world, but most concerning is up north in the Pacific Northwest where there are healthy salmon runs and exactly. potential escapees. Have we had any evidence of these uh, farmed salmon competing with native salmon in the Northwest? Well, you have to know that they are, Jennifer, right? You have to know that they are because they're escaping in large numbers, millions Millions of them are escaping a year oh, by, so by the scary. direct report from the farmers themselves. And just like any species that comes into a habitat, it's going to be a new species. You might consider it an invasive species, but it's going to have an impact on everybody else who's already been there. Mm-hmm. So imagine if you're a Pacific salmon, and next thing you know, you've got this other fish about your same size, your same shape, who likes to eat the same thing as you do, all of a sudden living in your habitat, there is going to be competition. It's going to impact those native Pacific salmon populations. It's pretty interesting. It's, it's scary. How about the tuna ones? Where are the tuna farms? I've seen them off, uh, off, an, off the coast of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, where else around? Are there any in the United States? Or I don't believe yet in the U.S. Baja, off the Pacific coast of Mexico, there's a few. I know that they're doing some of it down around Australia. I saw a show on the Discovery Channel a few months a few months ago now on um, the tuna farms down there, and they literally go out in the ocean and find large schools of, of small tunas, catch them in nets, bring them you know hundreds of miles back to these fish farms, and raise them up to be adult tunas. So they're going out to the wild to get their tuna. <laughs> I see your point about the the negative net profit and protein by extracting more from the wild to right. create these farmed fish. For it's the, that whole food pyramid thing that we all are familiar with. That mm-hmm. The farther up the pyramid you eat, you know, the less kind of protein there is up there. Mm-hmm. For those just tuning in, I'm talking with Sheila Bowman from Sustainable or Seafood Watch from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and we're talking about sustainable seafood, and we've just been talking about fish farming a little bit. 
Um, how about, I mean, we're talking about the guide. We're, I want like to talk about the guide in a little bit. But as far as um, for those of folks that don't have the guide, is there a way to find out when you are purchasing seafood um, if it's farmed, if it's if it's um, sustainably raised, is there really any way? I've gone to many places and have asked when I didn't have my guide with me, and they typically come up with like this word like, oh, yeah, this is organic salmon, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is always an interesting one. And, of course, there's many more questions. What can people do if they don't have a guide to try to find out more about their purchase? Well, a couple things. First of all, um, just to address your thought on the organic salmon, you know, there's no – organic standards for seafood at all today. Mm -hmm. So anybody that calls any seafood item organic is absolutely, um, they're either using an international, international guidelines. They're not using U.S. standards for that. So it's not really something you can put all your faith in. Um, But where can people get guides? You know, I think the most important thing you said there, Jennifer, is people need to ask Mm-hmm. Be asking at the grocery store, be asking at restaurants. It's important that these folks who sell us our food know where it comes from and can tell us about that. And, of course, you can always pick up a pocket guide on our website at seafoodwatch.org. But we have this new service for those folks who have web-enabled cell phone or some kind of personal device. If you go to seafoodwatch.org on your cell phone, the list pop right up for you there as well. Mm-hmm. So that's another resource if you kind of out at the store and just have your phone, you can kind of pop in there and take a look at the recommendations. So you're, if you're caught off guard without your guide, you have an exactly. online version. That's neat. Um, the overall purpose of Seafood Watch is consumer pressure. Um, what are some examples of consumer pressure working to help with these fisheries? Well, there's a number of examples. I mean, you could go back to the tuna situation in the 70s with the dolphin safe tuna which was a you know kind of the classic example of consumers saying that's enough we don't want to see that kind of industry practice anymore um we've also seen in more recent years similar kinds of success stories around the atlantic swordfish when they did you know give swordfish a break boy about 15 20 years ago now Mm -hmm. and it really stuck in people's minds that you know giving those fish a break for a short period of time can can result in their allowing them to rebuild their populations and come back. You can enjoy Atlantic swordfish today probably because of that campaign 20 years ago. So there's a lot we know that consumers can do, and I think that it's really important that we not only put our money behind the good guys and spend money supporting the people who are on our green list making the best choices, but tell some, tell some folks about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that each of us, if we could tell four or five people, this movement could grow and we could have more consumers doing a lot more asking of questions and businesses would respond. Restaurants and businesses would respond to consumer demands. One thing I've encountered when I've tried sharing this uh, with folks that I know one of the common responses I get is, this is cheaper. And they're, they're, they're very concerned about price, as most of us are. And they just can't see past that. And I'm, I'm curious as to, what would you say to, to someone like that that is just more concerned about the price, and so they'd rather pay for the cheaper sam- salmon, the Atlantic salmon, or the 
um, something that's farmed unsustainably that's on the red list. Uh-huh. Um, what's a good response for them to help them start to see what could be a better purchase? Well, you know, in the last six months or so, and this gets into not only our food systems, but everything from, you know, kids' toys to all kinds of different products we use, I think consumers are starting to realize that cheap doesn't necessarily mean that there's not costs somewhere down the line for us. And it's becoming, I think, a little bit more in vogue for people to not just go for the lowest price item, to think about what the other costs might be. If you've been to the aquarium, we have an exhibit on sustainable seafood called the Real Cost Cafe. Mm-hmm. So you may not pay, we may not pay as much money for farm salmon in cash, but what we're going to pay with environmental damage and potentially the loss of that Pacific, those Pacific salmon populations, those are other costs that we have to think about. And um, the real costs are pretty high on some of those products that are on the red list. Yeah, I think that's the age-old question of having people see the longer, bigger picture with a bigger lot picture. of these programs. Exactly. So um, what about algae? I didn't see any algae on the list, and maybe it's not because it, maybe because it's not an animal, but algae is eaten by several folks, and there have been unsustainable practices that I've read about in the past. How does Seafood Watch program v- view algae? Well, that's a very interesting question. We don't really consider that at all. Um, that's a great question. I don't have really an answer <laughs> for you on that. I haven't, I haven't heard about unsustainable sea, seaweed practices. Well, just thinking about the way they reproduce, if you scrape off an algae colony, that those none of those algae will be able to reproduce because they reproduce by spores. Right. right. So, but I've read of some practices, and I believe up in Mendocino there's a good place where they, um, I don't know the name of the, the company, but they harvest in such a way where they're really rotating how much they take and where huh. they take it, and there hasn't been an impact I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'd just be curious. Around the world, we do have nori. There's a dulce, Uh lots of other types of algae, vital part of the habitat. And I haven't seen much about it. And it makes me think, well, maybe there's not a problem. But maybe That's very interesting. Because I know when you said that, mostly I did think of, you know, off Japan, they do have huge algae farms. But they Mm -hmm. tend to eat. And they're not the most, perhaps, pretty things to look at in your offshore waters. Mm -hmm. But... um, you know, they just kind of are there, and they're a natural, not a natural, but a native species. And um, I hadn't really thought about that. So that's a great question. Well, it'll be we'll something to that. look into. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, so if you are um, a consumer, you know, or you're at a restaurant, what are the top three questions you would a restaurant or a market, what are the top main three questions you would want to know about your seafood choice? Well, you know, again, kind of referring back to the pocket guide, it depends on what you're most interested in eating. So, for example, if you're into having some salmon, the most important question is going to be, is it farmed or is it wild? And this time of year, it's a little more difficult to get farmed, I'm sorry, to get wild salmon. So when I see salmon on a menu this time of year, I'm always very curious about it. Mm -hmm. Even if it says wild salmon, I think, hmm, where are they getting that from mm-hmm. this time of year? Um, but there's other things. You know, if you're interested in eating shrimp, then the question is, is this a U.S. product or is it an imported product? And that's where the question would be important. So you have to sort of know what you're interested in eating, check out the pocket guide, and see what the 
criteria sort of says on there. If it lists, you know, if it lists shrimp, U.S. farmed or wild as a good alternative, that's the one you're after. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a couple of questions you can think of right away. Farmed or wild, if it's U.S. or imported, and um, seasonality, is this really an in-season fish? Seasonality is very interesting. You know, sometimes it's interesting to find out how it was caught, if you can. And again, you know, sometimes, Jennifer, these questions are good just to ask, just to find out what the product is. What are you eating? Where was it caught? Who, who, who caught it? Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Sometimes what we hear with fresh fish is this is something that came from the other side of the world. And so those are things to consider yourself. You know, when I heard about that Tasmanian salmon, I thought, oh, boy, not only farm salmon, but how many food miles, how, how much fuel is being used to get that exactly. I think from that's, down there to up here. I think that's a big question that I've just started thinking about is so much talk about um, CO2 and emissions, and mm-hmm. seafood is one of the yeah. big ones. Um, not even internationally, but locally as well. We have to burn fuel to go get fish, wild-caught yeah. fish, um, versus some of the aquaculture practices. So, so there's a lot of trade-offs, and it sounds like consumers just really need to think about the big ones in order to make a, a good choice. Exactly. Well, listen, we're going to come up on a break here, just about one thirty, and I hope you'll stay with us, and we'll talk a little bit more about the guide and, and how to translate it a little bit. Um, on the half hour. So please, Sheila, stay on the line with us, and we'll be back in just a little bit. Great. Thank you. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock. We're talking about sustainable seafood today with Sheila Bowman from the Seafood Watch Program at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And we will be back in just a few moments. Listening to KWMR 90.5 FM in Point Ray Station, 89.7 in Bolinas, and live on the web at www.kwmr.org. KWMR is supported by the Dance Palace Community Center, located on the corner of 5th and Beath Streets in Point Ray Station. Member supported, the Dance Palace offers classes, events, and facility rentals for the communities of West Marin. Membership information, volunteer opportunities, and event schedules are available at thedancepalace.org. 
or 663-1075. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Sheila Bowman from Seafood Watch with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. When we return, we'll talk a little bit more about how to make better choices and using the Seafood Watch guide from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Please stay with us. Sheila Bowman on the line with us. And Sheila, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the Seafood Watch Guide. You mentioned earlier that the guide is updated twice a year. And can we just review again, what types of data does the staff at Seafood Watch use to create the good list, the not-so-good list, and the red list? Okay, well, we look at each species that's on our list, each seafood item, with a number of different kind of criteria in mind. And it really, again, depends if it's wild or if it's farmed. But if you're looking at at wild fisheries, we look at how much habitat destruction might be involved when the fish are caught. We look at, is the fishery overall well-managed? Is our government making sure you're not taking too many, leaving enough in the water to reproduce? We look at how much bycatch there is. We look at just sort of the overall, you know, impact on the fish populations. So we have researchers here that use fishery data to put all of those recommendations together for us. And they're all posted on our website, which is really a great place for people to go and look. You know, check out your favorite seafood. See what's going on. You can learn a lot just off our website. Yeah, I saw that there was actually a document that shows all the types of criteria and questions that are answered to decide where that that yeah. uh, fish speaks. And I have seen them move. You're, um, in each yeah. of the, they've moved from the uh, green to the yellow and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I, a little bit more about the yellow category. I think it, it stands for um, a better choice, better than red. But it's one of those things that I fall right in the middle on. Like, I don't know if I should go with the yellow. You know, is it really, it would be really helping if I chose a yellow listed animal. Um, what are your what is the real guidance for the yellow area? Would you prefer people to go green or? Well, the way we look at it, I mean, the first thing we ask people to do is to just take all of those red lists, those avoid list items. If people could take those off of their menus, quit eating those, that would be a great first step. So then, what are they left with? Well, hopefully, with between the green and the yellow list, there's quite a few things to eat there. But we always, if, we give, if we're given the option, we like to say to people, okay, maybe choose something off that green list. The reason it's the best choice is because those are the fishermen and the fish farmers who are really doing exceptional work. So if you think about your dollars supporting the farmers and the fishermen who are out there, if you can think about using your dollars to support the real people doing the best work, then you want to shop off that green list. Mm-hmm. That kind of leaves the yellow list as fish that are, you know, we call them good alternatives. They're okay choices. They're good for once in a while. If there's if there's not a green list item that you like, you can eat something off the yellow list. But we tend to think of it as kind of sort of special occasion food. You don't eat off there all the time. Got it. Okay, that's good. That's good. Now, um, if I'm in a restaurant and I see, this has happened to me quite a few times. I, I have my list with me. I'm pretty good at that. Fa- I'm faithful to my list. Um, but I see things on that menu that are not sustainably 
harvested or farmed, and so generally avoid it. But then when I leave that restaurant, I'm left with an impression that I want them to know they could make better choices. What are some resources for me as a consumer that I could use to help educate places that I would want to go eat? Well, you know, I think you make a really important point, Jennifer, that a lot of people have not even thought about seafood. So we're talking, we talk with restaurants regularly, and these restaurants might be into cage-free and organics and free-range and all kinds of artisanal products that are better for us and better for our planet. And they may not have even thought about their seafood. It's just not something that's as, as easy for these folks to kind of understand. So we find that consumers actually do a really nice job of introducing these ideas to chefs. So when you go into a restaurant, give them a pocket guide. Um, we also have other things available on our website where you can leave behind other cards and other bits of information that can help these chefs sort of get maybe what might be their first awareness that there's a problem. They may not even know that Chilean sea bass, that there's issues around that. So who's the best person at a restaurant to leave that information for with the management, um, the, the chef, or who would, be, who would you want to leave that for exactly? I, you know, I do a lot of speaking with chefs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that most folks, when they go into restaurants, can get to the chef. So a manager's really a really good option if the owner's around. I think that's probably your most optimal contact person. I've also, you know, left information with, I just did the other day with um, just my server and just said, you know, if you could pass this along. And sure enough, I got a phone call within a couple days here. So I just want to tell people that when they leave pocket guides for restaurants and when they tell people, you know, to to look into their seafood and learn a little more, we do hear from those restaurants. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. I I was concerned that, oh, if I put that down, maybe it'll just go and be forgotten. And really, if I want to make that effort, I really want it to count. So that's that's good to hear. Now, as a coastal resident, um, I appreciate the the maritime heritage and the small fishing towns that we have along the coast, and it's really what attracts people to come here from afar. But I see it dwindling um, away to big corporate fishing industries. And how can we support more small, local, independent commercial fishermen in our purchasing, and and how do we know um, where they're selling? Well, now, that is a trickier question. Um, We don't really get into a lot of that kind of information on our pocket guides. Mm-hmm. So that's when you you kind of have to keep your ears open to where, you know, here we are in the, you know, off the California coast. What, what do we hear about? What are the fishermen out there doing? You know, we have a giant squid fishery. I'm not giant squid. We have a very large fishery for squid off our coast. Mm-hmm. Certain times of the year, those are coming in, in in good numbers. I think everyone knows, you know, when we heard this year about Dungeness crab season being pushed back. So, you know, part of it's just kind of keeping your your ears open and knowing what's out there and supporting those products as they come into season. You know, the salmon season will be opening up in the next few months, um, presumably. We've had some problems with salmon this last year, but, um, you know, those are the times when you can support local fishermen is when those fish are seasonally coming available and they're out there catching them. That's good. And how about for um, folks that are traveling internationally? I, I recent last year had a chance to be in Europe, and I was really perusing the menus. Interestingly, 
just thinking about how where is this all, food all coming from? And for folks traveling internationally, um, what are some recommendations for them for seafood purchasing since it's out of U.S. waters typically? Well, you know, we have a couple of things that we recommend. We we have a, actually all of our pocket guides are for different regions of the U.S. But we do have our national pocket guide, which is kind of a more general recommendation that would work anywhere in the U.S. And so a lot of those species could also, you could also use that if you were traveling. It's got, you know, tuna and swordfish and some of the big, the, you know, the most popular fish are on that. Um, but then there's also other countries that are doing different pocket guides. So the same work that we're doing here in the U.S is being done in other parts of the world. So if you go to our website, we actually have a resources section that really talks about um, and gives you specific links to organizations in Canada and throughout Europe and Australia and Asia and even Africa where you can download pocket guides that you could use for your travel, which I think is kind of pretty cool. That is great. Is there a difference between these? I've seen different pocket guides in the United States, different marine conservation organizations have their pocket guides. Are they all generally the same? As they're, I'm just, one that's kind of confused me a little bit. I haven't looked to compare at them, but are they all generally the same? Well, you know, the thing, I'm going to say yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally they're the same, but sometimes different organizations have a slightly different kind of priority or methodology. Mm-hmm. So I know I've seen some pocket guides where they really try to incorporate not just the health of the animals in the ocean, but also the health factors for the fish if you eat it. Mm-hmm. So if you start to look at sort of those things as they combine, then sometimes you're going to get a pocket guide that looks different than ours. Got so it. Oh, there are a little of, different. Yeah, you kind of have to know what you're looking at. I mean, our pocket guide is really about, you know, we don't even, funny, we call it Seafood Watch, but we really try to get people to think about fish, mm-hmm. fish and fish populations as opposed to just thinking about, you know, seafood that we eat, sort of a distinction between, you know, the animals and their habitat and just the part that we see when we when we have dinner. But um, our priority is really just the environment and the oceans and the fish that live there. Some other organizations have different priorities, you know, so that's sort of what you have to kind of keep your eye on as you're looking at these different pocket guides. And I know sometimes people feel confused about that. I just... I think if you grab a pocket guide and kind of go with it, then you're going to, you know, you, they're all pretty similar in what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And if you pick one up, that's a great start as it is. It's a great start. And you're pro- if you don't like what it says on the Seafood Watch Guide, you're probably not going to pick up another one that has our red list items on the green list. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the news is the news. <laughs> yeah. So real quickly, we're just running up to, uh, uh, running out of time here, but... What about this upcoming event, the Cooking for Solutions event at the Monterey Bay Aquarium on May 16th and 17th? Can you give us a little background on that? Well, I am so glad that we have a chance to talk about that, especially for your audience being so close by. We do Cooking for Solutions every year. This is our seventh annual um, event. It's a fabulous several days worth of, of programs and galas and specialty tours and um that Saturday, we have a kind of an open house in the aquarium where anybody who pays admission can come in and have salmon tasting and kind of see everything that's going on. Gene Burns is in the aquarium that day doing his show live. So it's we do have a website. It's called cookingforsolutions.org, and you can go in there and 
take a look at all of the events. But this year we have Alton Brown coming in. We're very excited. He's from the Food Channel. <laughs> we have Darina Allen, who is um, sort of the Alice Waters of, of Ireland, and she's coming in. We just have a lot of great chefs, both local chefs that come in. Um, Stuart Royza is coming from Rubicon up there in San Francisco. Um, and I'll tell you, it's a great way to to eat sustainable seafood and other sustainable um, products, you know, poultry and all kinds of good things. It's not just all fish. Lots of sustainable wines, some organic wines. Um, boy, it's fabulous. It's really a great chance to, to realize that eating good, sustainable seafood does not mean torturing yourself because there's great food, tasty food. It sounds like a wonderful event. I wish I could uh, go. Um, Gotta come, Jennifer. Come on down. <laughs> is um, so I, th- I would assume some of this has a cost. Are, are, are there events that are also free to the public? Or the c- event on Saturday comes kind of with your aquarium admission. The gala that we do on Friday night, which is one of the probably premier um, pieces of this week, is um, one fifteen for the general public and ninety five dollars for our aquarium members that are up your way, and. Um, we have a number, like I said, on Saturday we have some cooking demonstrations in the aquarium that some of those come for free. Um, we have some of these tours where people can go out and we call them food and wine adventures. They go around to different houses and places down this way and uh, those are priced individually. So it's all on the website. It's really all listed pretty nicely there at, at cookingforsolutions.org. Wonderful. Great. Great information, Sheila. Thank you very much for spending your afternoon with us and sharing your information about purchasing sustainable seafood. I know for me, I've had some burning questions about what can I do? I'm in a restaurant and I see this salmon and I can't believe it's still the Atlantic salmon is still on the menu and I really Uh want to do something. So I think you really provided some good ideas for consumers today to to help um, get more involved as we have this wonderful way to use our dollar in a positive way. And I just want to thank you again. So thanks again. Well, thanks for having me, Jennifer. And I just hope everybody will take an opportunity to just rethink their seafood choices. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thank you. Seafoodwatch.org is the place to go to. You can download a guide off the Internet. You can compare uh, East Coast to West Coast to National and learn about some of the um, information that they use to make these green lists and red lists in regards to purchasing seafood. So that pretty much wraps it up today. I'm running out of time here, but I just wanted to say thank you for joining me. We learned about opportunities for purchasing seafood in a more sustainable way. Um, The main questions you can ask yourself if you don't have your seafood guide on you at the time is, is this animal farmed or wild? Or is it a U.S. product or is it imported? And how was this animal caught? What type of method? Those are the main questions you should be thinking about when purchasing seafood. And check out seafoodwatch.org to get a, take a look at that guide and see what's on there. Um, these are great ways to be making a positive difference as a consumer in, in the health of the oceans. Thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary 
and is broadcast on KWMR, Community Radio for West Marin. You can find archived shows at cordellbank.noaa.gov, and you can learn more about KWMR at kwmr.org.